You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So I want to invite you now, as is our custom, uh, to open the Bible with us. I want you to... Uh, to join me now in Nehemiah chapter 5. Now this is in the Old Testament and, and if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have access to a Bible, would you do me a favor? Uh, you can find access to the Bible through a, a device you may have, but even there's, there'll be a Bible that's probably underneath the seat you're sitting on or, or one in front of you, a paperback Bible, and I want to encourage you to take that. If you don't own a Bible, please let that be our gift to you. Uh, don't be afraid of the table of contents if this is one of the first times you've opened the Bible. We're in the, we're in the kind of the first half of the Bible in the Old Testament, the, the story of God's promises that, that are given to us that we believe are fulfilled at the end in Jesus Christ. And so we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 5, and up to this point in the story of the Bible, God has created all things and restored his people, even though they regularly rebel against him. God in love disciplines them, and they're exiled to Babylon. But, but God, being rich in mercy, invites them back to the promised land and back to their city of Jerusalem to rebuild and, and to reform that which was destroyed. And so the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and even Esther take place under this new reign of the Persian Empire. And so up to this point, uh, Zerubbabel has led a, a, a task and a team of people to rebuild the altar, that they would have right relationship by sacrifice before God. And then Ezra comes along and reforms the people, that they would, they would begin to, to remember what it's like to live as a distinct people with a distinct purpose. And so Nehemiah comes along and his project is to help rebuild the walls, right, quite literally, so that they would be a distinct people separated from the idol-worshiping pagans around them, but also reforming the people themselves, the community themselves that had, that had begun to live just like the pagans. It had just begun to live as though they worshipped all the other gods that the rest of the world had worshipped. And so, so they're invited to a task of renewal. And so in this particular series of ours through Ezra and Nehemiah, originally one unit, one book, I've been asking this question to you. Where do you need or want, where do you want or need to experience renewal? I hope this question is repetitive because as we saw even in the book of Ezra, the, uh, the repetitive nature of our sin and wandering demands the repetitive experience of God's grace to renew us. Where do you want or need to experience renewal? Where in your own life have you grown cold, unforgiving, Malicious, judgmental. Where have you become discontent, lacking joy? And I promise you, that place, that place that you long to experience more, more joy, more, more comfort, more contentment, deeper and more abiding happiness, joy and affection for God's grace in your life is a place that the Lord means to give you all that you ask for. He means to grant all of those longings in the depths of our heart to us. We believe that he's given, it, given these things to us in Christ. But as we've kind of worked our way, now we're getting close to about the, the turning point in, in this series of Ezra and Nehemiah, over halfway through in many ways. And, and so I, I asked a question last week that I hope will even mark some of your own journeys of renewal. Where are you currently? experiencing renewal. For many of you, you've been asking, I've been asking that question every week, where do you want renewal? And here's, praise God, I've already heard many stories of places where you're already experiencing that. Now, if that's not you, that's okay. We see in the story of even Nehemiah, the first four months of renewal for Nehemiah were weeping and fasting and longing for new life. 
And that may be you, right? You, that may be, maybe right now, that's, that's all you've got the energy for, is to, to weep and mourn over the, the deep sadness, sorrow, and destruction in your own life. And I want you to know that's okay. Welcome. Well, you are welcome here. But we long for renewal, and for some of you, you're already experiencing that. And what we find for the, as a theme of the book of Nehemiah is the places where God brings renewal, begins to restore the city itself of Jerusalem, and then restore and reform the people, God's very people, are places that become targets for the enemy. We saw last week a concerted effort of threats and taunting, people rallying around to stop the work of rebuilding the walls. And so in a united effort, Nehemiah called the people to defend, protect what God was doing. And so you saw half of the people were carrying tools and the other half were carrying weapons. And some of the people rebuilding were carrying a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other to defend and protect the work of renewal. And no sooner had they had a united effort against the adversity that came from outside that in, verse, in chapter 5 were invited to consider the adversity that they begin to experience and we experience not from the outside, but from within. So beginning in verse 1, chapter 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. 
And all the assembly said, Amen. And praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also preserved in the work, or excuse me, persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance for the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. In chapter 5, Nehemiah faces opposition to renewal from within. In chapter 4, we saw that the opposition to God's work of renewal came from the outside. But what we see here and what we're introduced to contemplate as God's people is that we can experience adversity to renewal from the depths of our own hearts and from inside our own number. After all, as Christians, we know this is true. One of the final exhortations we see in the book of Acts comes from the Apostle Paul in chapter 20 and verse 29. He he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Even as the church was coming into being, the greatest threats we find, and if you, especially if you read the book of Galatians, are not from outside necessarily. They're from people who would call themselves God's people and yet in their own lives deny that they belong to the very heart and character of God. The way that they live is inconsistent with the nature of God. And so also Nehemiah, as is, I would say, the theme of the entirety of the book of Nehemiah, is that there is an opposition to God's work in the world of renewal. I've shared this with you as as we as a church want to experience new life and new joy together. There's been a lot of things that that would be obstacles to that, right? If you've just lived through the last 20 months, um, right? Remember when, remember when we talked about it like it was a, a year? We would say 2020. We would talk about things going on as though it was 2020, right? That was fun. And many of us, we're just, we're exhausted by it. Right? We're worn out by it. At the very least, we're just tired of it. But we're left, like these people, 
in Ezra and Nehemiah returning to a world that we know will never be able to go back to the way it was. We've seen and experienced things over the last 20 months that we'll never get to go back from. Now, I shared with you in the, as we were walking through this in the book of Philippians, there are many things I hope we don't. I hope many of these things that God is renewing in us are, are things that are here to stay. But we as a church have gone through a building project. We're still in the middle of it. We're about halfway done in many ways, right? We're sitting in the middle. That can be exhausting. We're facing a new season as a church where I think the wisdom of Ezra and Nehemiah calls the, the example of good leaders to mind for us. There's much for us to glean here. And the theme of Ezra and Nehemiah is that whatever that work of renewal that we might long to experience will always be met by opposition. And it's possible that the greatest opposition, the most devastating opposition to the work of renewal can come from inside, in our own hearts and amongst people who would call themselves the church, God's people. So if you see, there's three sections in this, in this chapter. I want to kind of walk through and explain what I can and hopefully draw some, some modern parallels and, and words of, I think, wisdom and encouragement and admonition for us. The, the first five verses you, you see summarized a, a, an outcry. The second section from verse 6 all the way to verse 13 is, is a call to very specific re- repentance and restoration. And then the last we see from verse 14 on sounds like, remember when we were in, book of, we were in the book of Ezra, it's, it sounds like a Quentin Tarantino move, right? Something from the future that kind of intersects with, with the narrative that, as you see, is years later in his second term as we're introduced to a, a title here we hadn't heard before that ever, evidently Nehemiah was what? A governor. So he went from being a, right, a wine taster, a food taster for the, for the emperor and then and for the king, and now he is a governor. So you see this outcry of distress. You see a call to repentance and restoration. And then you see Nehemiah leading by example, not taking advantage of the position that he has. So last week, the outside enemies were in view. Threat to the rebuilding of the city walls. But this week, there's an internal and evidently even more subtle problem that's under the surface. And here we see also, and you see in the first few verses, the threat there, that, that above the surface is that there's a famine. But notice that isn't, what the, that isn't the problem that's addressed. Under the surface, the famine exposes evidently what was going on, and that was exploitation. And what we find out is that whether it's later on and, and maybe Maybe in this sense, like Nehemiah is warning. Some, many scholars believe that this chapter, verse, this chapter 5, be, ought to fit into the end of the, of the book of Nehemiah and, and, a, and all sorts of other calls to renewal. Or he's, he's simply kind of like interjecting here reflections that were from the future in his memoir to, to in many ways, just kind of like warn of what was to come. But it's also pointing out a theme that evidently had been happening before the book, that, that the people of Israel, God's very people, called out to, to live in such a way that was distinct and testified to God's character, were starting to live just like the pagans, the idol worshipers. They were starting to live like everyone else, even enslaving one another, taking advantage of one another. An insidious threat that didn't come from the outside on the work of the walls, but came from the inside and threatened the very community itself. And so, this might be a chronological story. This might be happening as the rebuilding is going. Or it might be him or Nehemiah or his disciples reflecting 
on themes that were coming to fruition at the very end. But the opposition, mind you, if I can make it clear as possible, was not from the outside. And we saw that you and I will experience opposition from the outside. From the very beginning, there was a personified evil, namely, we call him the enemy, that Satan, the accuser, the devil, that has opposed God's work from the beginning. But remember, Satan is not like God's equal. Satan is not omniscient, omnipotent like God, and they're in some battle. I encourage you to read the book of Revelation. The battle uh, between Satan and his army against God is a, is a verse. It's like, and that was it, right? And so, so Satan is not God's equal. Satan is God's creation who rebelled against him and leads an act of rebellion. And for us, we have a spiritual weapon. That is God's very word. The word of Jesus that slays and silences the accuser. But in this case, the opposition isn't from the outside. It's from the work that comes from within. Complaints arise from several members of the community. There's at least three, and you heard them kind of pointed out. Did you catch that? In verse 2, there were those, right? And then verse 3, there were also those. And then in verse 4, even still, there were those, right? So there's like three different groups of people with three, at least three different complaints, One is that because of the famine, they're they're struggling to have food, you see, in verse 2, to keep alive. Their lives are in danger. They're on the edge of starvation. The second complaint is that they're having to mortgage their own houses. Now remember, for for God's promised people living in a promised land, their property, the place where they lived, was a big deal. It was evidence of God's promise. And so if someone were to come along and like threaten that, It's a tangible threat to the promise of God being fulfilled. And then the third complaint is that now, because these people are in such dire straits, their own children are being put into slavery. They're not able to pay the royal taxes. And Nehemiah responds, and he raises charges against the nobles and officials. He calls them to account. He rebukes them. He exhorts them to repentance in a better way. He exhorts them to live in such a way that testifies to God's very nature, to love and care for his people. He calls them to repentance, that is to turn from the ways that they're living and to trust in God's ways instead. He's motivated, as you notice, by the fear of God. And so therefore, the fear of God we see is shown from verse 14 on as his example. And he submits all these things into a petition such that they be remembered by God at the very end. So here's the catch. I don't want, my goal is not to make you paranoid of opposition from within, right? The goal is not to start a witch hunt or some sort of like a a conspiratorial fear where we're like, who is it? Who's going to, right, who's going to, who's going to turn on us, right? The story of the Bible says the answer to that question is very clear. You see that person's reflection in the mirror every day. No one has forsaken you. No one has lied to you or disappointed you as much as you. And so it's not that we will be paranoid or accuse one another, but instead it's to draw your attention in this passage to the comprehensive nature of God's renewal. That God will not leave a stone unturned. He will make all things new. And the the work of renewal isn't just in the building, but it's also in the relationships of God's people. So last week we saw the response of the people from the taunting and threats to, to unite together, to rebuild and and this week, you'd think, you'd think, oh, this is great. This, this is, this is, they're united. They're working together. They're protecting God's work of renewal. And then some other things happen. The massive task of rebuilding the wall evidently was a great cost on people's time and energy and money, and it was putting them into debt. 
And then we're introduced to what I would say is the primary theological theme of Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, I'm going to sound very repetitive for the rest of the weeks of this study. Is that there's a constant temptation by God's people to abandon trusting in his promises. There's a constant temptation to resort to the evil practices of the world. There's a constant temptation, a gravity that pulls us into trusting in lesser things than God himself. I shared this with you, the, the picture of experiencing God's grace and renewal is less like just kind of walking in the path of renewal. It's more like walking up an escalator that's moving downward. If you stop for a moment, the flow, the, the force of uh, the, the inertia of the ground you're standing on carries you in the opposite direction. Experiencing God's grace is daily, regularly contending as a remnant, a, a minority of people calling for God to come and renew us and make us new. And I love in this case, how the Bible never flinches in the face of human depravity. You ever notice that? For many of you, if you're in this room, if you're not a believer, you're new to the Bible, I want to encourage you, probably one of the most, as a skeptic and and a, a naturally cynical person, one of the most encouraging parts of the Bible is it never glosses over how awful people really are. I know religious folk can, but the Bible doesn't. And so it says straight out, like, there were people... This is, this is where if Nehemiah was retelling the story, he'd want to gloss over and be like, hey, it wasn't that bad. But what is it? He's like, people were selling their own other people into slavery. As if to say like, hey, I know you can't pay. I know, I know, I know you can't pay, but I see your daughter over there. And I love how honest the Bible is, but that's what the human heart is like. That in hardship we're regularly tempted to simply take advantage of others. So the first exhortation, I think, in the first five verses is this. We are to recognize the temptation to take advantage of others amidst hardship. In the places, remember, I asked you to consider where you want and and need to experience renewal. Recognize your first temptation in those places of hardness and coldness is to blame or take out your anger on others. It's to think that it's someone else's fault, that God can't really fix it, and so you need to take it into your own hands. Look, everyone who's done something awful to another person usually has a really, really well-thought-out explanation because we're really, really good at justifying anything. We can justify mistreating anyone. And in this case, they they were simply engaging in trade but not holding to the spirit of the law to protect and care for one another. Even their own families, they, were, they weren't caring for their neighbors or loving the other people in the community of faith. They were taking advantage of them. Now, let me warn you, from here on out, this is, this is how this works. Every book of the Bible we walk through has at least one or two what I call pew-clearers. To be clear, that's a dumb thing to say, but I'm going to explain it anyway, right? You're not sitting on a pew, per se, but there, there are places in the Bible that, that come right up against our own cultural, political, or ideological assumptions, places where we think we know what's best, and And the Bible comes along and confronts each and every one of them. And I want you to know, for the rest of this chapter, this is one of those. And I want to encourage you. Like, what what he calls us to is something that it is sure to offend you. Because it offended them. That's why he included it. And in that sense, will make you want to stop attending, worshiping with us, right? And hence, clears the pews. You get it? It's, It's dumb. But think of it this way. They were simply engaging in free market trade. 
Friend, you may be really, really good at pointing out all of the flaws in the human heart that are exposed in things like communism and socialism, but are you good at pointing out the flaws and sins of the human heart that are expressed in capitalism? Do you realize the system itself is driven by the human heart? And the human heart, apart from being changed by God, is driven by covetousness, greed. So I want you to see that what was happening here was, in many ways, just a good free trade. And yet they had taken something and they had begun to exploit one another. And they had taken opportunities, instead of caring for one another, they had taken those opportunities to take advantage of one another. And here's the thing. I bet they had a perfectly good explanation. I bet if you confront them, hey, why'd you take that person into slavery? Well, well, right, you can, you can hear them. Well, what about all of those? You hear it? And notice, to experience renewal is to hear the cries of the distressed. One of the greatest hindrances to experiencing new life and new joys is to close your ears to the cries of pain and lament in the world. And so, he calls them out, right? There's a a picture of drought here that evidently had squeezed them in such a way that the, the motivations of their own heart were exposed and so I'll say more about this later, but essentially, uh, here's, here's what I'll tell you as a, as a general rule that a mentor shared with me. You will either love people and use money, or you will love money and use people. And they were threatened with their own lives, right? They were threatened with the loss of their own property, and their first their first response, the people with influence and wealth, their first response was to what? To destroy themselves, to take advantage of those who were in the greatest need. And I want you to know that temptation that exists in this people and expressed in this kind of exploitation exists in your heart and mine. I encourage you, if you want, for so many of you who serve in Kids Connection, it exists in the human heart and you can see it most beautifully in Kids Connection, right? You, like you... You don't have to teach kids to want to bite one another. Like, I, like I've never seen a person like, here's how you bite. <laughs> All right. You take, right. I've never seen that. Where does that come from? You get it? Like, where, like where, what part of the human heart and brain is like, I, I know what I'll do. Uh, you took the toy? That's fine. I'm going to have to bite you. Right? Like, <laughs> and so notice, that kind of rationale isn't expressed is it? Instead, it's just an urge. It's a natural tendency in you and me. And so, one of the greatest barriers of renewal is to deny that impulse, or excuse me, deny that that impulse exists in you and I. That we really want to hurt others when we feel hurt. But look at the response that happens beginning in verse 6. You've got to love Nehemiah here. You just heard that some daughters have been thrown into slavery. Human trafficking was taking place. And verse 6 is as succinctly an understatement of the experience of that as I can say, I was very angry. I love this. Now, he doesn't respond immediately in his anger to others. You can see this in the ESV. It's kind of difficult to translate, so the ESV turns out this way. So, I took counsel with myself. (laughs) Right, next time you get outraged, that's, here's just a practical word of wisdom. Hey, take some counsel with yourself. Maybe go hash that out, right? 
And so he's furious, he's outraged. But I want you to know he reflects the very heart of God. Psalm 94 puts it this way. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. And the psalmist says this, understand, O dullest of people. That's nice, right? You idiot. (laughs) Fools. When will you be wise? He who planted the ear does not hear. He who formed the eye does not see. He who disciplines the nations, does he not also rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows even the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. So I want to encourage you, these these cries of anger of Nehemiah and the cries of these people, I want to encourage you, are heard by God. We saw this last week, I want to keep, keep pointing you to this. The desire renewal is to cry out to God and to know he hears. And the psalmist says, you're a fool if you don't think that. It seems like people are getting away with it in the world. Only a fool would think that. Those of us who know the heart of God tremble when we think of his holy wrath upon the evil that exists in our own heart and in the world. And so he accuses them publicly, right? It brought charges against the nobles. I said to them, you're exacting interest. You're taking advantage of people. This was against the spirit of the law that was given to them, that you're to be a distinct people, not biting and devouring one another, but caring for one another, welcoming the outsider, taking care of the people who are unable to take care of themselves. And the right response at the end of verse 8 is this, they were silent. Notice that that's the best response when we face sin, right? That's the best response. But notice the way that they were, I just want you to see here, the the way that they were even appealing to to Nehemiah for help was that they they ultimately saw that the fact that these were were equals before God. These were very, they were brothers and sisters. As far as we're able, we've bought back our brothers and sisters who've been sold into the nations, right? As if to say, God's renewing us. We've gotten freed from the Persians. And you're over here now putting other people, your own family, into bondage. They're our own children. They're of the same blood. We're the same before God. By His grace, we're His people. And so they appeal to something that you and I, I hope, regularly refer to, what we call as the imago Dei. That is the image of God. That is that the infinite complexity and beauty of God is imaged in human beings. It's the basis for our understanding of how the world works. That ultimately... There is something beautiful and infinitely complex, unknowable even, mysterious about human beings, about you and about the people around you, that is worthy of honor because it reflects the worthiness of God. And he says, you're going against that. You're going against the thing that God gave to us. Therefore, that is his image. And he called them to account. He called them to repentance. It's a beautiful story because it ends in, it ends very well. They're like, yep, silent, totally did it. And then what does it say? They give three things in verse 12. We'll restore these, one. We'll require nothing from them, right? They'll stop. So, so they're going to repay. They're going to stop charging. So they're going to, excuse me, I lost my spot. They're going to they're return uh, all the things that they've taken. They're going to restore them. They're going to repay. And then they're going to commit to not do it again. They're going to do what they'd promised, not to do this again. 
The way that they were living and relating to one another did not reflect the nature of God. It did not reflect his character, his steadfast love, his patience toward his people. Instead, it reflected the world. For those of us in Christ, for those of us who have experienced the grace of God, this threat still exists. One of the most terrifying stories, I think, in the entirety of the Bible is the book of Galatians, a word to a church that had lost the gospel. Right? Think of it as they had just gotten excited about other things. Their, their, their joy and excitement of belonging and, and being in Christ was overshadowed by their love and affection for lesser things. And the way that that was evident, Paul tells the Galatians, was in the way that they related to one another. So, Paul goes in, in Galatians chapter 2, he goes to Cephas, that is Peter, the man, right? the rock upon which Jesus is going to build his church, that guy, says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Right? Do you hear the kind of the language of Nehemiah? I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Right? He had no defense. Right? There was, he couldn't justify his actions. What was he doing? It says, because before for certain men came from James, the brother of Jesus, and he was eating with the Gentiles. All right, so he was eating with the outsiders. He was welcoming the people that Christ's blood had, 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 had brought in, right? We saw this in the book of Acts. We call it the bacon chapter, right? If, if, God, can make a, a, if God can make an unclean pig wallowing in its you-know-what clean, then he can do anything with us, right? And so I imagine he was hanging out with them, and he was probably eating bacon, right? But when they came, that is, the people who who were, in the, who were the, the high religious elite, right? The, the people who were, who were living according to the laws, they saw it. When they came, what happened? They drew back. They stopped hanging out with the outsider and welcoming them like Jesus had welcomed them. And they separated himself because of what? They were fearing the circumcision party, right? They were fearing the people, the religious people who thought that that would be wrong. And the rest of the Jews did what? Then they acted hypocritically along with them. So his hypocrisy drew other people into it so that even Barnabas, I love it, Barnabas, he's, he's Mr. Encouragement, right? He's the guy who's uplifting. There's no way he would exclude someone. Barnabas is the son of encouragement. But even he was led astray by that hypocrisy. Listen to this. But when I saw that their context, con- conduct, and listen to this phrase, was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I point this out to you, and, and the thing that terrifies me is they knew of God's renewing work. They knew of God's hospitality to the wanderer and the outsider, but they evidently didn't experience it deeply. And the evidence, this will blow your mind, who they ate with, The awful thing that was not in step, that was contrary to the good news of God's grace, was seen in who they ate with. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Our behavior shows our doctrine. Our relationships relationships with one another reflect our relationship with the Father. And he was not living in in light of his relationship with the Father. And how did it show up? Who he ate with. (laughs) Wow. And so they're called to repentance. Now notice the, the restoring work that they were called to engage in was costly. They were going to have to pay back what they had taken. But I want you to see 
the picture of God's grace here and God's acceptance of their repentance, but I also want to see it as a call to, to run to God with the things that we've taken for granted, the things that we've taken advantage of, the things that we hold more tightly to than Him. And they were called to restore that which they had broken and stolen and enslaved and, and put things back right. And that would have been difficult because notice this, that the experience of renewal includes repentance and generosity. Remember that place where you want or need to experience renewal? For the rest of the chapter, what we're invited to consider is that we might not be experiencing renewal for something as simple as who we choose to eat with. They were called to restore what was broken, and I'm certain of this temptation for them. The short-term cost always seems high until you consider the long-term cost. Did you catch that? Restore what's broken. In verse 12, they said, we'll do it. We'll require nothing from them. We'll do as you say. And so then he even calls in the priests, right? Like, do you swear? This guy's going to hold you to it, right? And he made them swear to do as they had promised, to restore what had been robbed and what had been taken advantage of. In verse 13, it says, then, then he engaged in sort of a pantomime. Like he lived out the You see this elsewhere throughout the New Testament or throughout the Old Testament. He says, he shook off the fold of his garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and be emptied. And I thank God all the assembly said what? Amen. Indeed. And then what happened? An act of renewal, they praised God for it. They could have easily seen the short-term cost and missed the long-term cost. Namely, that to not live in this way is to show that we do not belong to God. Now, the fold of their garment, that's not helpful, right? Maybe not for us. For us, right, it's like, I don't know, dust off your shoulders, right? Right? I don't know. I don't know why I did that. If you're from the 90s, it's, right? Shake, 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 all you Gen Xers, shake it off. Just shake it off. Now imagine all of that coming from the very character of God. To say, get off me. I'm going to shake you out, empty you, pour you out because you have no part in me. The short-term cost always seems high until you consider the long-term cost. Let me put it this way. As they considered the weight of their own earthly wealth, the earthly cost always seems high until you consider the eternal cost. Look, I know you look, you look at what's broken and you think, how can I make this right? And it may seem like it's more than you have, but friend, that is cheap compared to the long-term cost. That's cheap. And so the response then, beginning in verse 14, Nehemiah gives a story, right? He gives like an example of what he did when he was in his second term as governor. He came the first time to help start the rebuilding pro project, took 50 to 60 days, and then later he came back as like in a second term to, to begin, you'll see for the rest of the, the book, to, to enact, to enact uh, like work of reform and, and of repentance in the people. And so he gives an example. He, in many ways, he just says, look, here's how I did it. Let me tell you how I've led with example. He said, from the time that I was governor even in the land of Judah, 
right? For 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were, governors who were before me, evidently, had laid heavy burdens on the people, and they took from them. But he said, I'm not going to do that. I want you to notice what he did. He responded with a heart of generosity. He had advantage over those people, right? God had seen fit to elevate Nehemiah to a, a great position of power and authority. And he could have. He had the right. He had the privilege. He had the advantage to take these things from these people. And yet, he renounced any advantage that he might have taken. He renounced taking advantage. Instead, notice what he did. He took the privilege he'd been given and he leveraged it. He leveraged it in such a way that reflected the character and nature of God. Friend, we are privileged. We are privileged. I mean, you're sitting in a padded chair. We are privileged to sit in these comfortable chairs. But even think in those terms, what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that privilege and that comfort? We're going to lock people out? Or are we going to leverage it and invite as many people as we know to sit beside us and hear the good news of God's grace? Friend, you have privilege. You have been granted the unmerited favor of God in Christ. You didn't deserve it. You had no right to it. And God has emptied heaven and granted you all the grace that exists. He's given it all to you, poured it on you, lavished it upon you in Christ. What are you going to do with it? It's been a difficult topic to consider what a privilege is over the last 20 months, right? It's a pretty offensive and disruptive topic, the topic of privilege, isn't it? Well, if that bothered you, you're going to hate this. He renounced and forsook his privilege to reflect the heart of God. He gave, I mean, just look at this. Like, he was like, hey man, 150 people are going to party with me. Right? This, we're t- this is like, hey, I'm going to care for some people who, who, are, who are having a hard time. Verse 17, 150 men, Jews and officials besides them who came from the nations that were around us. He's just being generous, but it, it gets better. Here's what was prepared at my expense, Right? Here's here's what I gave to these people. One ox, six choice sheep, and birds, and every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. That's that's something a wine taster would say, right? This is a sommelier going like, yeah, you know, we also, we had the finest, right? And he took the very, like, think about it, he took the most valuable thing he had, and he saw it as an invitation to welcome others with it. And though he had abundance... He didn't think of it as something to hoard or to take advantage of those who did not. Instead, he invited others to receive it. Friend, you are privileged. The God of the universe has sent his son to absorb the wrath that your sin and mine deserved. And now we sit in his seat. We are united with Christ and all the love that he showers onto the Son, now he showers onto you and to me. And here's the bizarre thing about our privilege. Anyone can get in on this. Anyone's welcome for this. Think of it this way. The, the funding needed 
for this project of renewal was in his hands. He had it. The resources you and I need to experience renewal are in your pocket. I even think about as an act of renewal, like a a work of renewal that we as a church are engaging in in our city. All the funding we need for the project of renewal for Connection Church is in your pockets. You have it. You have every, you have all of it. And the Lord will resource us and equip us. It's all right here. We have everything we need. Evidently for Nehemiah, it was simply that they wouldn't hoard it. They wouldn't keep it to themselves. Anyone can get on this. Let me give you a couple of like concluding statements about the generosity and repentance that we see here. Jesus picks up on this very theme. We find multiple times Jesus speaking to this. And we as a church, I want to encourage you, we have no problem talking about money. We like talking about money because it, it's how we talk about our heart. And we desire to be a generous church. Every good thing that's happened in the life of our church is the result of the generosity of someone in this room. Someone who sacrificed their time, their energy, their money, and has made this possible. And here's all I'll promise you is that you'll either love this or hate it. Everything you give to Connection Church, we're going to give away. <laughs> like every, everything you invest in our church, we're going to use somehow to leverage benefiting someone else. That's just, we're going we're to do the best we can in that. Matthew 19 says it this way as he tells a parable. Again, I tell you, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So hear the threat that Nehemiah casts on this, and and hear the warning that Jesus gives. The Bible says elsewhere, something that's often misquoted, and that the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, some of you have been taught it's the money, right? Just money is the root of all evil. It's not true. Money is neutral. It just reveals what you value, quite literally, down to the penny. It's the love of money. It's, remember I told you, it's, it's when, you, when you love money so much that you use people rather than you love people so much that you use whatever resources you can leverage for them, right? And he says you're better off trying to be a camel getting through the eye of the needle than to be a rich person trying to experience the reign of God in his kingdom. So here's the thing. I want to be very clear. I want, I want you in this room to become filthy rich. I mean it. Like, I want you guys to start businesses, climb corporate ladders, right? I want you to, like, get promoted. I want you to make a ton of money. Hear me, hear me. I I want you, because here's what happened. When you live for God's glory, right? When you live in such a way that, as Colossians says, everything you do, you do as unto the Lord, right? He tells the Corinthians, if, if you eat or drink and you do for the glory of God, here's the thing. It looks cool in the world and you will benefit from it. Not always, but most of the time. I want you to make a ton of money. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to give it all away. I want you to throw it graciously. I want you to take those resources and funnel them into expanding God's kingdom. And for some of you, here's the warning. If you're not, this is why. Luke 12, he says, But to the one who did not know and did, not, and, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. For everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. It's possible, I think here, God puts the resources in the hands of the generous. And I'll just warn you, the Lord will not put many resources into your hand until your heart is changed to be generous. And it's his mercy not to give our church more than our generosity can handle. It's his mercy not to give you personally more than your generosity can handle. 
because he wants you to get through that eye of the needle. He wants you to make it into his kingdom. And in mercy, he'll hold back things because the axiom is true. The one to whom much is given, much will be required. A few chapters later, it says, one who is faithful with very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. So that means for us, the heart of generosity is the expression of renewal. When you see things that are broken in the world, is your heart broken for them? Now, the tricky application of this chapter is, this was specifically for God's people. So it means for those of us who call ourselves Christian, who call Connection Church our family, we are never to benefit or take advantage of people who are in need. So again, I'm not saying you can't get rich. I'm not saying that you shouldn't get rich. I'm saying that you don't want to get rich and not be generous. You don't want a Taylor Swift song to be your life motto, burning and separated from God in eternity. Yeah, it was a weird turn, wasn't it? Shaken, dusted off. This is how C.T. Studd says it. He says, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. So the call to generosity could be a call, as we saw, a call to shame, right? Generosity in many ways is kind of like we talk about reading the Bible and prayer, sharing the gospel with people, right? This is a place where I could go like, you know, you know you don't pray enough, right? You know you don't read your Bible enough. You're like, oh, yes, you know, heap the shame on me, right? But that's, that's not how that works because if you've ever, I've never met anyone. I've never experienced anyone who's like, man, I just read the Bible way too much, right? It doesn't exist. It's simply it's a part of walking in faith. So also is generosity. I've never heard anyone say like, man, I was just way too generous, right? I was just way too kind-hearted toward people in need, right? I've never heard that, okay? So, so don't be heaped with shame here of like, I'm not generous enough. That's not the case here. Instead, we're meant to reflect upon the generosity of God towards us and simply let that shape the way we live. We're meant to let the generosity of God shower over us and then it, and it works its way out in the way we live. Because be sure, you will not be able to fix all of the suffering in the world. But by God's grace, you can bear witness to the one who can. You won't be able to solve the poverty, the suffering in all the world. But you can bear witness in your word and action to the one who will. You have met him and he has been generous to us. His name is Jesus. And this story of renewal through generosity that points forward points to a greater act of generosity that you and I have experienced in Christ. It looks like this. Philippians 2 says it this way. We're not to do anything of selfish ambition out of selfless ambition or conceit, but instead in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. You hear the language of Nehemiah here? Now let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this is where, again, if you stopped right here, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I should totally do that. Shame on me for not. But here's how he says we get our motivation. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who even though he was in the form of God, talk about privilege, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but instead what? Emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and not just any death, a death on an old rugged cross. Therefore, God has now highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because he saw his great wealth and power, and instead of lording it over, he emptied it out for your benefit and mine. Paul tells the Corinthians this way, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Did you hear the three parts of this chapter? The first five verses are are what? That Nehemiah, the servant of God, hears the cries of the distressed, and he responds to them. Beginning in verse 6, he calls the guilty to repentance and receives them. And then lastly, he forsook his royal privilege for the sake of others, all for the glory and honor of God. Do you hear this work of renewal in Ezra and Nehemiah pointing forward to a greater work of renewal that we are invited to consider in Christ? Nehemiah heard the cries of distress. He called the guilty to repentance and received them, and he forsook his own royal privilege for the benefit of others. Friend, there is one whose name is Jesus, and he hears the cries of the distressed. He calls the repentant repentant and receives them. And he forsakes his royal privilege as the king of kings to take his place on an old cross for you and for me so that you and I might experience renewal. This story of renewal points forward to the one who was wealthier beyond anything we can imagine and who became poor so that you and I might receive blessing. And that changes the way we live, doesn't it? That changes the way we see things. Think of it this way. I'll give you a list. It's off the top of my head. I've made it formal, I think, but here's it just it's a part of my own prayer, right? I want you. I want you to speak up for those who have no voice. I want you to advocate in the world for the people who can't advocate for themselves. I want you to advocate for the unborn. But I want you to advocate also for for women who are experiencing unwanted or unexpected pregnancy. I want you to advocate for the poor. I want you to speak up for the abused. I want you to to speak up and advocate for the immigrant and for the refugee. I want you to advocate for the incarcerated. I want you to speak up for women. I want you to speak up for the people who cannot speak for themselves. You hear the list? Why do I want you to do that? Because, friend, you and I were on that list. Far from God, dead in our sins, hopeless, without an advocate, without hope and without help, but we were not left. Jesus has crossed that border. He has crossed that barrier and invited us as wanderers and as aliens, and he has welcomed us. Even though we were unwanted from our sin, we were welcomed and adopted as children. And that changes the way we see that grace of God granted to us. 
and it changes the way we experience renewal in the world. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that you have seen fit to to love us and care for us. God, even now I pray that you would uh, do an act of renewal that's miraculous. God, I confess even the, the frailty and feebleness and foolishness of my own words. I pray that you would do what you always do, is that you use frailty and weakness to bring about new life. God, for those of us in this room, we feel like wanderers and we feel like we don't belong. Thank you that in the same way Nehemiah heard the calls of the distressed, received the repentant, and gave up his own privilege to help, so also you, Jesus, have heard our cries of distress. You have welcomed the repentant sinner. You have forsaken your own privilege to love and care for us. God, might that soften us to be more gracious people. Might that soften us to be generous people. Might even now we begin to think about all the good gifts we've been given and leverage them for your glory. Might we be willing to lay down all of the luxuries, the talents and the time and the treasure that we had. Might we lay them all down to see your name lifted up. Lord, this gospel, this good news of your redeeming love is a privilege to get to hear. Help us, Lord, not to keep it a secret. Help us leverage. Help us take this and help us turn it into something that's beautiful. God, we can't do this. You're going to have to. So would you renew our hearts? And might the work of renewal this morning be that you welcome the repentant sinner and you take our cold, greedy, covetous hearts and you replace them with your own heart of generosity and kindness. Fill our hearts now with your heart, a heart that's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Implant in us now the heart of Jesus himself who relinquished his own royalty to take the place of wounded sinners. Thank you for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.